that was one of the more impressive or enjoyable parts of, of, of Stockholm was seeing all of these streets. But unfortunately, they were just summer activations and were going away in, uh, in September. Yeah, so it did spur a, a lovely uh, sort of connection. Chris said that, you know, Lars was really good at connecting with the kids and he asked the kids quite honestly, what do you think about you know, what we've got going on. And Etienne had just said earlier uh, that he's like, why is there a highway going through the city? And so he said to Lars, you should get rid of the highway. <laughs> and Lars is like, thank you. It's on my mind. Hey everyone, welcome to the Active Town channel. I'm John Simmerman, and that is Melissa and Chris Bruntlett from Delft in the Netherlands. Uh, we are actually going to be chatting about their family vacation and going through a whole bunch of cool photos of their explorations. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, but it's a long one. So let's get right to it with Melissa and Chris. Melissa and Chris, thank you so much for joining me once again on the Active Towns channel. Uh, it's always great to join you, John. <laughs> I think it's our third or fourth appearance, but... Oh, who's counting? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who's counting? Who's counting? Uh, yeah, you know what? I think you're right. This would be your third appearance on the actual podcast, uh, but this is the first appearance, I think, on visual, on the video cam, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the last time we chatted, it was all audio. I yeah. remember because... My mic was rubbing on my sweater while I was trying to talk. <laughs> yeah. And thank you very much for doing this. Uh, really, what we are going to do today is just give you an opportunity to pull up your photo album and share some memories of some wonderful uh, personal travel that you all had. And uh, I was just soaking it up on social media because you do a great job of posting about your family trips and the things that you see out there. And so for the listening only audience, it may be a little rough because we're gonna have lots of photos here. We'll do our best to try to describe what we are seeing on screen. And then for obviously the YouTube audience, the visual audience, uh, you're going to be treated to a wonderful family vacation that has lots of cool urbanist things that kind of come out. A little bit of active mobility and some of that. Uh, but before we get started, uh, why don't I just turn the floor over to the two of you for a quick introduction. Who are you? <laughs> who are we? Well, for those that don't know who I am, my name is Melissa Bruntlett. I have been working in advocacy for cycling and urbanism since a long time ago, over 10 years, and work now with an organization called Mobicon based in the Netherlands, working as a strategic advisor and focusing on communications and engagement around inclusion and equity. So uh, this will be a bit of a departure from my day-to-day -day talk, which is nice. Yeah, <laughs> that was very quick, very efficient, Thanks. nicely done. <laughs> yeah, and I am, well, Melissa is my better half, Chris Brunlett, and I'm lucky enough to be the marketing and communication manager for the Dutch Cycling Embassy for the last five years. Yeah, prior to that, Melissa and I, worked on a little consultancy called Modacity based in Vancouver, Canada. We've co-authored two books, Building the Cycling City and Curbing Traffic. And we have, through that advocacy work, landed some pretty incredible roles living and working in the Netherlands and documenting that on social media and building up quite an interest and quite an audience and uh, sharing our insights, our experiences, our observations from our day-to-day -day lives and our day-to-day -day travels. Yeah, I think what's interesting with where Modacity is now is it started as a passion project, became a job for both of us for a time, and then now is 
still partly a job, but a lot of a passion project again for us. Yeah. You know, it's gone yes. back. And, yeah. It's made, it's had its mm-hmm. evolution. You know, it, 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 yeah. I, I like to, uh, a, I, I really cherish our friendship and, uh, the ability to connect and, and chat like this. And I just, I've loved this journey that you have been on and it really dates back to 2015 when you took your trip, I believe it was, was that actually in 2015 when you guys took your trip? The next year, but that's okay. Okay, the beginning, the beginning of 2016. <laughs> I, I think I remember 2015 because I know that 2016 is when we actually met at the Pro Walk, Pro Bike, uh, Pro Place conference there in Vancouver. Because I, I can't, I, I don't recall if you had mentioned that. Yeah, you, you're Canadians. You were in in Vancouver for a while, and then you made the move over to the Netherlands because of these opportunities that emerged. But uh, I think it was in 2015, maybe you were doing your your fundraising and you're doing your prep work uh, to be able to make it over to the Netherlands for that trip. How many weeks was that on that trip? Five weeks, five yeah, cities. So, yeah, 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 five weeks, five cities. And it really became that platform for the book that eventually emerged, you know, that first book, The Building the Cycling City, of which we did talk about in our first podcast episode. And then the second podcast episode, we talked about the second book, uh, Curbing Traffic. But I've really cherished our relationship. I you know, had the opportunity, like I said, to meet you um, at the, the conference uh, in person. And, uh, and that was a huge delight. And that was, that was post-trip. Uh, because that would have been mm-hmm. in, in the fall and, and then and you guys had already had that opportunity to go. And then it was, you caught the tiger by the tail. It was a whirlwind tour of promoting the book. And, you know, next thing you know, you're moving the family over there. And uh, I will uh, refer people to our other episodes. I'll put the links uh, down below uh, to those episodes so that you can dive into the that story, that backstory. But uh, I also uh, cherish the fact that, uh, you know, I was in Delft in, gosh, what was it? It was last November, uh, the latter end of October and into November. And and I'm like walking down this little street right here on screen and run into the two of you because I was basically staying about uh, two and a half blocks away. But we had not yet connected yet in person uh, there in Delft. And, and so I, I guess that's one of the cool things about living in a people oriented city is you have that opportunity for those chance beatings. And that's why what we're going to be talking about today and these images, I think, is so incredibly important when you build cities for people. You can have those sort of interactions just by chance. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think Chris and I often joke that, well, it's inevitable when people are visiting Delft that we know that we're like, when are we going to bump into this person while we're walking around? Because it's not a huge city. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when, when you were visiting last year, it was like, of course, we're going to bump into John on several yeah. occasions while yeah, he's yeah. around. Um, but it's, it's nice. And it's what we were looking for, for sure. And moving yeah. here. Well, it was also kind of funny too, is that it, as chance would have it, I was staying in a, an apartment suite right on a, a street that was being re done rebuilt and so it was it was becoming a an improved feet strut and uh that ended up being like uh, the main drag where a lot of people would ride on to get to the grocery store which is right down at the end of the block (laughs) so that was Mm -hmm. kind of a fun thing so i ended up producing a video promoting that and you all ended up producing a video uh promoting you know that transformation as well yeah yeah i think 
I mean, we, we always say it, there's this culture of continual improvement in the planning profession here that other cities could learn a lot from because every infrastructure upgrade, whether it's sewage pipes or gas pipes or other necessary upgrades that need doing, there's always, it's always seen as an opportunity to make the street better, to make the lives of the residents better. And that street was a great example of uh, now it's uh, yeah, a, a great feed strat with, and we use it all the time, you know, it's lined with sunflowers in the summertime. They're just an absolute delight to uh, cycle by. So it's, it's good to live in a city that's, that's constantly getting better and, and thinking about its residents. Uh, there's so many opportunities here that we just walk by and we take some photos and share them on social media. And next thing you know, you know, there's people around the world saying, yeah, yeah, Delft is special, but the Netherlands is quite special because there's still room for improvement, uh, even after all they've accomplished in terms of creating livable human scale for a city. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here we are. We're, we're not here to talk about that stuff. We're actually here to talk yeah. about your vacation. <laughs> uh, and so here's a little family shot. Uh, if I were to guess, I'd say this might be in Copenhagen, but who knows? Where, where's this shot from? You're absolutely right. This is Copenhagen, and this is day one, I think. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll day one of yes. Uh, set us yeah. up. We'll, Twelve we'll, days we'll, or so. Yeah. yeah. Twelve days. So set us up. Well, talk a little bit about the itinerary. Why we're doing this? What's the context? Because now we're just shifting into family photo mode. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is odd for us. Is it okay if I if I run? This was my life for four months before we left. <laughs> yeah. No. Of course. Yeah. Credit where credits due. So. I think the year, well, last year we knew we had to go home, back to Canada to visit family. It had been, well, the kids and Chris hadn't been back to Canada since we moved. And so it was time to go home and have visits with family. So we knew last year we couldn't do a big family European holiday. We've been doing little ones, obviously, for those who have been following along. But this year was the first time we could do one big one. Uh, also, the redhead in that photo started college in September. And so we know that our family vacation time is getting smaller and smaller. And so for this summer that just passed, we wanted to do something where we could check off a few of the urbanist things that Chris and I want to do, but also combine it with stuff the kids would be interested in. So from the city perspective, finding the cool things that the teenagers are actually interested in and then uh, having that connection with nature, with nature. Uh, at the same time, Chris and I were a bit ashamed up until that point that as urbanists working in cycling advocacy, we hadn't been to Copenhagen yet. Okay. And so that was on the list. Uh, so it basically that combined with the desire to be in nature made Norway a very excellent place to take everyone. And so it started with Copenhagen. We're so close to Sweden. Okay, now we got to go to Sweden. And then from there, uh, heading over to Norway. So it was, yeah, 12 days flying to Copenhagen and then taking the train from Copenhagen to Stockholm, to Oslo, to Trondheim, back to Oslo, because that's how trains work there. Oh, and then over to Bergen. The stop in Billund, of course. Yeah, to yeah. <laughs> the Lego house. So yeah. Lego house, yeah. Yeah. I, I, this was like yeah. a this was a major task. Like you said, you, you, it occupied the better part of four months as you're trying to <laughs> yeah. plan this out and figure this out. 
Uh, because yeah, it, it, I mean, it's one thing if it's a business trip and it says one thing that if you guys are like saying, okay, we're going to go here, we're, you know, this city, pick a city, you know, Copenhagen, you know, or Oslo or whatever. And we're going to focus in on urbanism things and, and meet a whole bunch of people and blah, blah, blah. If you treat it like a work trip, it's totally different yeah. if you're like doing this multi-dimensional <laughs> Tetris type of thing yeah. where you're, okay, family and green time and nature and a little bit of this. Yeah, bit, yeah that's cool. <laughs> and I mean, it was one thing to choose the cities themselves mm -hmm. uh, and the dates, but then the final thing we did was choose what we wanted to do in each individual city. So Melissa created this whole matrix, like a Miro board. It of, was Miro. <laughs> yeah, okay. Of, of, of options, and each of the four members of our family got to pick, pick one specific thing that they would like to do from this big list. And of course, Dad picked the stupid bike ride, quite literally the stupid bike ride, because <laughs> the kids, <laughs> that was the last thing that the kids wanted to do. Yeah. But then they were able to pick things like the, the museums and, and the other kind of more fun things. Yeah. So that every, all four of us at least got one thing that we were able to choose in each city. Yeah. 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 And even the, the planning from it, for all of our fellow urbanists slash train nerds watching the planning of where we were going to go were involved. Last Christmas, I was given um, Ticket to Ride's Candid or Nordic version. And I used that with sticky, with post-it notes to like pin where we were going and which the trains were and writing down, okay, this is the times, this is the cost. So what, even though Chris and I would be playing the game, I would be looking, I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to go from Copenhagen to here. Can we go to Gothenburg? No, I don't think we can go there. And then, so building in a little bit of play and yeah, definitely checking off with quite a few transport nerd options as we were going along. Yeah. Well, how much is it, you know, like, for instance, you mentioned, you know, the eye rolling of, you know, the bike ride type of thing. But at the same time, that means a different thing to, you know, people in the Netherlands and people in Copenhagen, because it's just, it's just transport. It's just fun functional, practical transport. So it's not a bike ride per se. It's like, no, it's the most logical, practical way for us to get from point A to point B. Yeah, but I think the one thing that we're lucky enough to have is friendly faces in every city we go to, keen people, local advocates, civil servants. In the case of Copenhagen, uh, it was uh, somebody from the municipality who was very excited to show off his city and, and give us a very curated experience of not just the infrastructure, but the various neighborhoods and, and the developments, the new housing developments that they were working on just to get a flavor of, of Copenhagen, stop in the food truck area so we could all get a uh, bite to eat. And, that, and as you know, the, the bicycle just happens to be the easiest way to cover yeah. that much ground uh, over a couple of hours. Yeah, yeah. Rumbling teenagers be damned. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and well, the interesting thing about that tour is, yeah, the kids weren't super enthused about going on this bike ride. But one thing that we were shown by our, our guide was all these different like new buildings are going up and saying, Oh, that's actually a student house. And it's this beautiful tower right. that you would never see as a student house in, in Toronto where we went to school and, you know, saying, Oh, that might actually be cool. If I did a transfer here for a year that if I could live there or in this other, you know, sort of containerized style housing as a student, that would be a neat experience. And so there was just like little things to learn along the way, which, we really appreciate it on that bike ride anyway, just to keep them a little bit more excited. And getting us outside of our urbanism bubble, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So I, I actually uh, have a photo of this particular bridge uh, ju just off to, um, you know, my, my left over here. You can't see it in, in screen, but uh, I love this particular facility at night. It, I don't know if you had a chance to experience it at night, um, but it's, it's delightful to either ride your bike through or stroll through. Just one of the, I, I think, one of the strengths that Copenhagen does have are you know some of these bridge and overwater features in terms of uh, walking and biking and how they've been able to activate some of their waterfront. Yeah, I think that was one thing that we were both. I mean, it was both really nice to see, but I think you were really particularly excited about taking some photos of all the different bike bridges. They obviously we have lots of bike bridges here with lots of canals, but right. they're older and you know they have their own charm because of how old they are. But to have these sort of real modern takes. Uh, we really felt it when we were in Copenhagen. I think that it was reminiscent of, like, we could see why people from Vancouver really love Copenhagen. Right. There's a lot of similarities between the two. Not the mountain side of things, but the urbanism. And they're both harbor cities, yeah. Yeah. But in, and I think they could look at these, these bridges, very elegant uh, structures that have been created for non-car infrastructure, and look at them with, with jealousy because so many parts of the world are so far away from justifying these types of investment. Yeah. And if, if memory serves, you had like an entire chapter about building signature sort of facilities and high profile facilities and the value that, you know, cities and municipalities can leverage when you build something that's beautiful. You know, it, it helps bring attention to the fact that it doesn't have to all be ugly and drab and purely functional. Yeah. And I think the nice thing that at least we learned like in the in that chapter from building the cycling city is. With the Hoven Ring, it's this beautiful signature thing that people that work in cycling want to go and see, but it was actually quite affordable. And so when you're not building for cars, when you're building for walking and cycling, the budget can go down a bit and maybe you have more room for creativity, which is really nice. It still blows my mind that, that yeah, the Hoven Ring cost 5.8 million euros, which is, you know, a rounding error on a highway interchange. Well, it's probably a rounding error, a, a rounding error on the facility that's underneath the Hoven Ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. When you think of yeah the the city branding, the the tourism, the attention that Eindhoven's been able to attract as a result of that one piece of infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, it's something that that Copenhagen I think has accomplished through the cycle snake, which is on the screen now. Is yeah. uh, a statement of intent. It's not a lot of money, but it's thoughtfully and, and well designed, and it's very shareable on social media and it just puts this uh, really positive and inclusive image of your city out there to the world rather than well nobody's sharing photos of car infrastructure unless it's to dunk on it <laughs> exactly yeah what's interesting about the cycle snake too and this is a great photo that exemplifies it is that interaction and articulation that it has with the the buildings around it kind of cool you're up elevated in and you're like oh yeah I, there's all this elevation uh, and all these you know cool stuff that you can then you know kind of circle down around and get to yeah and i think what's really interesting is i think it's yeah when you get over to the other side of this bridge uh, because of some of the construction projects that are happening it's this massive basically bike only space with the exception of you know, pedestrians are obviously, obviously in that space too but yeah you get down there and you're like whoa this is like i have you know, even coming from here, we had so much space when we got to the other side, which was a bit alarming. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's temporary yeah, due to yeah. the construction, but still quite impressive to see. And then further up, you saw that's the intersection where they've taken the diagonal 
and rather than having to do a two-phase left turn, they've carried the blue paint diagonally through the intersection uh, just due to the vast number of cyclists that were taking a, a left turn on this intersection. So it's all a, a very linear route that's quite an important spine to their cycling network that gets you up from that intersection right down, I think, 15 or 20 meters down to harbor level. That's quite a vertical gap to bridge through the, yeah, the design of this infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I jumped from that cycle snake uh, photo, which uh, featured a cargo bike, over to a series of photos with a bunch of cargo bikes. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, what's special uh, about the Copenhagen, the Denmark sort of orientation to cargo bikes. I I find it very delightful. I've I've visited Copenhagen multiple times, and I end up doing the same thing, taking a lot of uh, photos of uh, some of the cargo bike uh, activity. Walk us through what we're looking at here. Yeah, well, I don't know exactly the context of the photo. It looks like somebody's <laughs> celebrating a birthday. I mean, it, I think it was a Saturday afternoon, if I remember. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is a fairly common sight. These most of these photos were probably taken in a single afternoon, and the the, the number of cargo bikes, the, the rate of cargo bike ownership in Copenhagen, I think, is higher than any other city in the world, including most Dutch cities, and, and they really have become normalized and and accepted as a part of the mobility mix there. Uh, you see children, young and, and older adults all riding in the front bucket, uh, getting wherever they, they need to go. It really has become uh, the great car replacement uh, tool for a lot of families. It's yeah, a great, it's a great location for, for stickers, too. I should send them a Streets Are For People yeah. sticker. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and I think what's, what's interesting, and we see this a little bit in the bigger cities in the Netherlands, too, is that you a lot of people you see as, as you said, or, you know, it's this alternative option. I wouldn't say alternative. That's not always a better word, but it's just a different option to, to getting around in a minivan. You see so many families using it. And in big cities, this often becomes a really comfortable way for families to move around where they might not be as comfortable with younger children riding on their own bikes, but then you have this great tool. So it's not, it's not like ride a bike by yourself or ride in a car. It's ride a bike or we can get a cargo bike where maybe I feel a bit more comfortable moving with my kids, but I still or still on a bike or your, or your dog. dogs. <laughs> yeah. Your entire family. I mean, right here. Boom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But and, I, I, go ahead, Chris. I, I, I was just going to say uh, real quickly um, is that what we've noticed is that sort of the design is, is a little different. I mean, they, they really have leaned into the trike configuration where you've got the two wheels mm-hmm. in the front. And so rather than a, you know, a, a cargo bike, we're really looking at a cargo tricycle. Uh, so it is a little mm-hmm. bit different on that you know, sense. Yeah, no, they've, they've embraced the, the, bo- the more boxier kind of traditional Christiana cargo bike. Whereas here in the Netherlands, the cargo bikes are certainly getting more sleek, more sophisticated, more with the, the styrofoam buckets and the electric assist, the urban arrows and, uh, and it's, so a long, it's the longer wheelbase too. It's a, it's a much longer yeah. Yeah. Uh, vehicle to be able to accomplish that and still be stable. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I think, yeah, the, the one point we always try to make around cargo bikes is in some ways in a cycling city, they are a sign of that maybe parents aren't hundred percent comfortable putting their, eight or 10 or 12 year old on their own two wheels. Mm -hmm. And so they may be a sign that there's some discomfort and dissatisfaction with the quality of the infrastructure there, that it's a bit too chaotic or unsafe. And and that the end game should be every eight year old can get on their own bike and not have to ride in the front bucket of a cargo bike. 
but in you certainly see it in Amsterdam and in some of the busier Dutch cities that cargo bikes are more prevalent there because the parents just don't quite feel comfortable enough allowing their child to ride on their own two wheels. Yeah, whether that's like from the other bike traffic or even the existence of car traffic on the streets. And so the challenge, I guess, for a lot of cities is to think about where is that, you know, this is obviously quite positive. It's not, they're not getting around in a minivan or SUV, but how do we get it so that kids also feel comfortable cycling to school and to their local activities? And what, what is the stress and how can we, how can we uh, support to address that? Yeah. That's a good point. And I hadn't thought about it in quite that same context before, but that really makes a heck of a lot of sense. You know, it, obviously there's a certain amount of advantage to, to being able to, uh, to do this. <laughs> you know, okay. Hey, let's, let's all go into the park and, and et cetera. Oh, how are we going to get the dogs there? Well, okay, well, let's do it this way. Cause they're not going to get on their little doggy bikes and, and pedal their own. No. Way. <laughs> but, <laughs> so let's, let's pop over to a, a little, just briefly on a little bit of the differences. You just kind of tapped into that Chris there. So continue that theme and we'll just uh, slide through this set of photos. To go to, it was good for us to be able to go to Copenhagen and see what everyone else gets really excited about. And we, like we said earlier, we can see why people from Vancouver and the Pacific Northwest or really anywhere in North America or other very car dominated cities go to Copenhagen and they see what is, what the potential is. I think, you know, comparing and contrasting to what we have now in terms of where we live now, you know, things like, like you're showing the bikes on trains, you know, we, we experienced it and it was great. But we obviously also experience the limitations of that. And, you know, we know there's a lot of complaints about in the Netherlands how you can't bring bikes on trains. But we also see where we experience full trains all the time. And this was fantastic to go a little bit further and not have to cycle all the way to the south. I think this was. But we still had to haul our bikes down through an elevator. Yeah. Load them onto the train. Yeah. And, and obviously there's only so much capacity. scalability, yeah. capacity to a system like this where our Dutch privilege is showing, but you know, when, <laughs> when you're talking about 600,000 bike train journeys a day, it just doesn't work with uh, even a fraction of those. Yeah. Bikes it's, re trains. it's really hard so, for many people in, in other locations to understand the, the context of that is that when you are running full transit, when you are running full trains, you, it's not easy just to be able to allow your, your, your transportation mode uh, before and after your said train trip on board, unless you do what I do and you have a Brompton and you can fold that sucker yeah. down into the size of a large briefcase and, mm -hmm. and, and tuck it behind one of the seats or underneath one of these seats right here. And so that's one of the things yeah. that I've noticed is that as I'm traveling internationally and I drag my, my little Brompton with me around the world is that I'm able to have that level of flexibility and also be able to ride to the train station, be able to ride from the train station, but at the same time not take up, quote unquote, too much space and become a burden to my other compatriots who are riding the train. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a whole other trip, maybe a whole other show. But it was, that just reminds me when we were having the we were meeting a group of people in Barcelona at the beginning of this month. And the joke from the advocacy group is how many people arrived on a Brompton for exactly the reason you're talking about. And I think, yeah, there was something like 10 Bromptons in the room at the time. Yeah. Um, the, Sp yeah. the, the, uh, the Spanish yeah. have really leaned into that. I was literally uh, interviewing mm -hmm. Manu Calvo yesterday and looking at some of the footage from Seville. And yeah, it was like Brompton, Brompton, Brompton. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Okay, continue. Um, yes. I, I mean, 
I think we have to be careful because, uh, you know, we, again, Copenhagen has accomplished a lot, but I think even when you talk to the people that live and work in Copenhagen, they'll be the first to admit that there's still a whole other level for them to achieve that is, uh, in a lot of ways, looks on the, the Dutch cities and the Dutch model with jealousy and, and aspiration because a lot of what they've accomplished has been basically to put a cycle path down on every single street with very little consideration for reducing the amount of lanes of cars or, or the amount of car traffic. So it still feels like a very car dominated city with bike lanes on every street, which is of course amazing from a North American view, but shouldn't be the end game for urbanists and for Copenhageners themselves, that they should be really having these difficult conversations about traffic, calming traffic circulation, improving the design of their intersections, which, you know, we had conversations with one of the mayors of Copenhagen who came to the Dutch cycling embassy specifically to ask us about intersection design. You know, there's still a lot of areas where the Copenhagen model uh, has room for improvement. The, the lack of bike parking at train stations, the other really uh, areas where the, the system itself doesn't live up to expectations or, or uh, its potential. And, and of course, there are huge numbers of people cycling there, but we would argue it's almost in, in spite of the infrastructure there and it works uh, safely because of the, the sheer numbers. There's safety in numbers rather than really high quality, comfortable cycling infrastructure and effective traffic calming. But I think our kids would say when we asked them at the end of the end of the cycle tour, how did it feel to cycle there? They're like, yeah, no, it was comfortable. The intersections aside, um, because we're very much used to not quite the same treatments in intersections. But, you know, for our two teenagers, they found it quite enjoyable. So it's yeah, as Chris said, from a North American perspective, if Copenhagen was the very first city, we had, cycling city we had traveled to, I think it would have had the same enamoring for us as as everyone else that we know. And. We, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't still go and learn from it because there's a lot to learn from Copenhagen and a lot that can be applied around the world for sure. Again, our, our Dutch privilege. Oh, yeah, there. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and I actually put Copenhagen in sort of the same bucket that I put uh, Rotterdam for, for slightly different reasons. But I, I like to point to those as, as two cities that are good examples for uh, North American cities that are trying to move away from car centricity um, or, you know, cities around the globe that are doing the same thing. They they maybe they have wide boulevards and streets and it's been car centric design and they're looking for, well, how do we achieve that next incremental step, which is very nicely illustrated in this photo here of, OK, well, what can we do to put in a generous uh, a cycle path in that is parking protected. There's still lanes for cars and be able to make that next incremental step. Not quite Delft level of traffic calming and, and, and sort of, you know, people-centric design, but it is a nice incremental step uh, to weaning ourselves off of drive everywhere for everything at super high speeds. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very fascinating. And of course, we've got the Danish blue in the uh, the intersection areas here. And yes, I, I would concur. That's that's one of the biggest challenges is uh, we, we don't see as many of the protected infrastructure, you know, at the intersections. It's sort of like, OK, we're going to slap some paint down here to indicate that this is a conflict zone. It's very analogous to what a, a lot of North American cities are doing with just giving up at the intersection and painting some green uh, across that conflict zone. 
And I think for a place like Copenhagen, it works because of that sheer volume of people on bikes. And so, you know, cars know blue means there's going to be lots of people coming through here and they adjust their behavior in the same way that on certain streets where maybe we don't have, uh, it's not a cycle street here or it's not all right, it's all paved red or there's not bike lanes. People driving will behave accordingly because they know they're going to see bikes, but it comes with a sheer number. But how do we, how do we make sure people are safe before we get to that? Uh, volume. Yeah, the my the, my last trip to to Copenhagen was a, when t- in 2019, uh, Laura and I just you know sort of jumped on the plane, went over there. We had our Bromptons with us because it was uh, as part of a, a Dutch trip that we were on, anyways. And we did the the stuff that we enjoy doing, which is riding from the airport, uh, riding to the airport. So we rode our bikes to Schiphol and then uh, rode our bikes from the Copenhagen airport into the little Airbnb apartment that we had uh, there in the, in the, I can't remember the name of that uh, uh, neighborhood we were in there in Copenhagen, but it was really nice to just sort of settle in for a couple of days of being able to zip around and, and do all that kind of good stuff. And then we connected with you all later in during that trip. So that was fun. For those that may be curious, the activities for the kids in Copenhagen were, I recognize it's not in Copenhagen, but was the Lego house. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And That's then for right. Leo, it was Tivoli, Tivoli Gardens. So yeah, we had our amusement park fix as well, including uh, she and I. There's the Lego. The... Here's the Lego. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How far away uh, is that then... to visit uh, the Lego city? It's not an easy trip uh, in terms of time from Copenhagen to Billund. It was a train and then a bus. I think it was two hours almost. Yeah, which almost made it a bit too far for a day trip, but we made it work. We made it work. And we were told that it's it, there's not a direct train to Billund right now because it's under construction. Mm. I think there will in the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But there's, yeah, something to be said for Tivoli about having that amusement park right in the center of the city. Uh, oh, yeah. And it was, yeah. <laughs> okay let's jump over to stockholm so, yeah sweden yeah mm-hmm. stockholm was stop number two yeah i think we i mean i think we just picked stockholm because it we wanted to go and it made the most sense for the train journeys we had also had gosseberg on our list and had heard okay. from a looking for a quieter city it might be a good place to go but it extended our journey too much so that's that's a trip for another time okay now real quick did you did you guys skip over malmo well, we stopped in Malmo because our train direct from Copenhagen got canceled to uh, jump over to, and so we just really experienced the the train station. But yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. But it the area around the train station was quite pleasant. Yeah. And I think we definitely need to need to go back. But in in this instance, yeah, we had to hop on the high speed train to Stockholm. And the yeah, the real kind of uh, the cool thing about Stockholm again, having friendly faces in every city means that somebody always there that's excited to show off their city to you. And in this case, earlier in the year at, at Bello City in Leipzig, I had uh, connected with Lars uh, Strongren, who was a, a longtime cycling advocate. For, he was the, I think, executive director of the Swedish Cycling Union, but was recently elected deputy mayor of Stockholm for mobility and urbanism, and was just fresh in the job six months and very excited to show off uh, his city from that perspective. So he invited us first to City Hall to uh, sit in his office for coffee, and he took out all these maps and uh, talked about his plans uh, and really engaged with the children in particular to ask them their opinions on on certain parts of the city. 
but then we were lucky enough to get on, out on our bikes and, and spend a couple of hours cycling around Stockholm, including experiencing a lot of their summer streets. And what you're seeing on, on the screen here is one of, I think, 55 arteries in Stockholm that they opened to people during the summertime as kind of demonstration projects and really activate the spaces and encourage people to sit and dine and play. And yeah, here's another one here a mm -hmm. bit further away. So yeah. I think that was one of the more impressive or enjoyable parts of, of, of Stockholm was seeing all of these streets. But unfortunately, they were just summer activations and were going away in, in September. Yeah, so it did spur a, a lovely uh, sort of connection, Chris said that you know, Lars was really good at connecting with the kids and he asked the kids quite honestly, what do you think about what we've got going on? And Etienne had just said earlier that he's like, why is there a highway going through the city? And so he said to Lars, you should get rid of the highway. <laughs> and Lars is like, thank you. It's on my mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, that's powerful yeah. though, right? When you hear it from, yeah. a, a, you know, a, a child and, and saying, yeah, why? What? This this is a non sequitur. This does not make sense. Why are you doing this to yourselves? Yeah. No, we. I mean, in that it was just the evening before we were walking through the medieval center of Stockholm, packed with tourists, beautiful historic area, and all you can hear is the drone of motor vehicles in the background because there's a, an elevated motorway that runs right through the center of the city. And Lars was he was keeping his cards close to his chest. <laughs> But he's, he kind of spelled out his timeline a little bit. And he's like, first, we need to do this project and this project. And then maybe around 2030, we'll be ready to uh, take the highway down. <laughs> wow. Wow. And not to plug another book, but uh, you, you talk about that. Uh, you talk about noise in your, your second book and how damaging and pervasive and insidious automobile noise in particular is when we're exposed to it continuously within a city. So, yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, yes, you know, for as beautiful the old city is for in, in Stockholm, yes, they do have a lot of cars still going on a lot of the major streets in the rest of the city. But there was still a feeling of, of quiet and calm, uh, not necessarily just in the old city center, but along the neighborhood streets. And, uh, there's Lars on, yeah, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> on the maps. He says he gets a real kick out. He, like every meeting involves a map is what he told us. It's all about drawing and showing. Yeah. But the image you saw, showed uh, one earlier, there's a funny story about that, is there was a, a municipal ban on removing car parking spaces or, or some kind of antiquated reason why certain businesses and, uh, couldn't reallocate the, the curb space outside. But in this case, it's the Netherlands embassy. They use their diplomatic immunity to uh, put out, say, car parking space <laughs> uh, and allow people to park their bicycles there. So I think it was a cool kind of uh, little bit of leadership there from the, the Dutch uh, in trying to uh, show how silly that, that rule is and, and that there are ways to work around it. Yeah, yeah. I think a big highlight for us, not necessarily was this the summer streets and this like getting the bike tour, but I think it was accidental. But we discovered that Stockholm has put a big effort into when they put in their metro line to lighten things up and because they have so many dark summer months. Mm -hmm. So we discovered that their metro stations are all quite creative, not all of them, but many of them are quite creatively decorated. And so we ended up 
It was our last night in Stockholm. Yeah. We ditched the kids. Yeah, they were and, not interested. <laughs> <laughs> and you and I, with our cameras in hand, beautiful uh, guided tours that you can find on the internet that point out the best of the best stations. And so we got a, a two-hour or four-hour metro ticket, raced from station to station just to try and soak it all in. Yeah. It's just a really clever way to make it more interesting and you know, obviously some of the stations are a lot more spectacular than others, like like one with a rainbow in it. Um, but even like for myself, I don't necessarily like being underground. And actually there was one time during the tour with Lars where we went through a bike tunnel and the, you could see the mountain above me, which I did not enjoy. <laughs> but to go in and see how they've reused the fact that they had to blast through rock to create these and, you know, add some art in a space that a lot of people are using. Yeah, I think we really enjoyed it. I think, you know, the one downside is you obviously have to pay to play to be able to actually see it. So you have to be able to pay for a ticket to get into the station in the first place. Right. But it's a nice, you know, I do appreciate good good subway art. Uh, I love Montreal's retro 70s, never changing stations. For It's just because it's nostalgia, but, you know, we like going through in, in Paris and seeing what they have. So this was just a nice sort of addition to the lovely subway systems we can experience. Yeah. This is fun. I mean, it's very, it's, it's neat to have something that's a little whimsical and, and different, some light and some paint and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it just creates that sense of fun while you are just going about your daily business of trying to get from point A to point B. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there was this funny moment where we were like crouching down on the ground, trying to get the best camera angle. And it's just like commuters rolling their eyes at us, you know, another, <laughs> another, another photographer, amateur photographer trying to like, uh, put it oh for them. Gosh. It's just more, their... more tourists. Those, those crazy Dutch, yeah. what are they doing? <laughs> Notice how I said Dutch, not Canadians. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, so then we decide, ah, what the heck, let's let's make our way to Oslo, Norway. <laughs> yeah, so I got to see, uh, yeah, it was not a lot, not a short train, but yeah, we hopped on the train from, from Stockholm to Oslo. I got to walk around there for half a day after a conference I went to in, well, last year, this time last year, and so I was really excited to bring everyone back. A little bit worried, because I think we were all getting a little bit tired of urbanism, and then we found, Chris found this. This was his... His thing he wanted was to do. Was this my thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think all of us, all four of us were quite smitten with Oslo in particular because it's a big city of one plus million people, but it really embraces and, and activates its natural spaces. And this is the perfect example of that. It's the Akerselva Riverwalk, which is an eight kilometer long urban walk if you can call it urban, because it starts uh, at one of the lakes on the outskirts of the city in the forests and really kind of goes through, follows the route of this river all the way to Oslo Central Station in the heart of the city, following the old industrial areas, the old factories, brick factories, and iron, wrought iron bridges, and really kind of, yeah, I guess we would refer to it as kind of a forest bath, but uh, really enjoyed wa walking the whole eight kilometer route, uh, all four of us and, you know, stopping it for various points along the way. But, uh, it was, uh, probably Something one of delicious the delicious tacos. You need to remember, mention <laughs> that we went for tacos and they were amazing. <laughs> yeah. But it's, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, uh, businesses and amenities that have popped up along this walk. 
yeah, I think there's not enough opportunities like that within cities to really feel like you're uh, well, a calming space or a restorative space uh, mm-hmm. that you're away from the hustle and bustle of the city. But in this case, we did really feel like we were in the countryside and we were walking right through the spine of, of Oslo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Melissa, I believe that you had the opportunity to to meet up with uh, Professor uh, Daniel Pietkowski at Oslo Met. Uh, was that uh, at yeah. that conference the previous that, year? Yeah. Okay, at the good. conference, yeah. So it was yeah nice to nice to have a friendly connection. Yeah, he came over and introduced myself. Said we know John. <laughs> so it was yeah nice to have that away from home home connection. Even though home in this case is all of North America. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's always nice to have friendly faces around the world. Yeah, that's great. And uh, soon to be uh, another Island Press uh, published author as well. So we're excited to see his book come out. Uh, Okay, so now we're in the urban city center of of Oslo. And I'm seeing something that's missing here. I mean, if this is going to be a vibrant (laughs) city, why aren't there cars? Yeah. I mean, they're, to be fair, they're not too far away, but I think that's one of the, that I noticed the first time I went to Oslo and then we, we experienced again is, you know, you, a lot of people talk about, you know, you get out the station at um, Amsterdam Central and it's so quiet. And we have the same experience when we come back to Delft and we're traveling is you walk out of the station and it's quiet and people think this is an experience you can only have at a Dutch train station. But when you walk out of Oslo Central, it's pedestrians, it's a few bikes, like there's, there's not necessarily a lot of bikes moving around, but it's, it's growing. And then there's trams. trams, and that's it. And then you walk directly onto a pedest- this pedestrianized street. And so that it's the same experience. I walked out after a busy conference. Uh, we walk out after being on a train for eight hours, and it's just quiet. Um, there's just, it's just the sound of people. And so it's just this great proof that it's not this like, secret that can only be achieved in the Netherlands. It it exists in other cities and definitely in Oslo. And I think it helped. I think and it was yeah. quite a contrast coming from Stockholm that we're piloting these car free streets to a city that it just implemented them on a permanent basis. Uh, yeah, it's part of a specific low car livability strategy to yeah, improve the economic vitality, the social fabric of the city. And yeah, there's a lot of really great spaces for people uh, not just in the center of Oslo, but stretching into uh, the residential areas. This is a completely car-free shopping street in the northeast of the city. It's just trams gliding through there, and it's just lined with pedestrians and terraces and, and really busy shops and, uh, yeah, lots of green space. And we found ourselves going back there quite a few times throughout our, our stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, of course, you know, all of that just helps to complement their their commitment to Vision Zero and that, you know, Oslo is often touted as one of the cities that's been able to actually achieve that goal. Uh, and that isn't through, you know, is not by accident, is very much because of a lot of these these programs that we got to experience. We were there. I appreciate, too, you said about how in Stockholm they were piloting these installations and these interventions, whereas uh, Oslo has made a a firm commitment. I was reminded uh, when I was reminiscing about uh, the car-free day that I was able to attend in Paris in uh, September of 2015. And soon after that, Oslo had announced their initiative to, to really boldly move forward with a plan to try to you know cut their addiction to automobiles, which was still very much relevant in, in the fourth quarter of, of 2015. I know that their ambitious plans that they had announced back then 
didn't come to fruition, but it seems like there's definitely some major success stories that uh, that we can point to, including you know some of these car-free streets, as well as uh, as you mentioned uh, uh, with Vision Zero and actually being able to achieve a. a massive decrease in the number of fatalities you know on the streets uh, of Oslo it's I know they're there it's challenging and they're not getting to where they originally had envisioned but what I'm seeing here and it sounds like what you have experienced is is really quite impressive yeah and we'll see it again in the other cities that we visited as well and and I've seen it in a couple others that I've had the opportunity to visit uh, in the last year or so also but you know there's this interesting sort of yeah, dichotomy happening in, in Norway where, you know, there's, there seems to be this commitment to try to move towards more sustainability, more safety, but they still do very much rely on cars. Topography obviously being one of the big reasons why, but also the distances. I mean, we come from Canada, we know that cities are far apart and sometimes, you know, there aren't always alternatives. And so they're in this weird challenging place right now is how do we shift to getting people more access to more options for transport? Uh, and shifting away from cars in, you know, a challenging place where, you know, a lot of their economy does rely on <laughs> car-based economies. So, yeah, it'll be interesting in the years to come to see how they start to address that or if they start to address that or or how they find different solutions to those challenges. And, and you were very coy there uh, mentioning, you know, car-based <laughs> economy. I mean, and, and Professor Piotkowski <laughs> and I were having this discussion at Velo City in Leipzig, Germany a few months ago. And, you know, I basically just point blank asked him, uh, you know, hey, I mean, you guys are like a major oil producing country. Politically, I mean, how is that really sitting? He says, yeah, it's it's a bit of a challenge, you know, when your economy is so based on this addiction to propelling this forward. But it's interesting how the culture can kind of divide that and say, well, yeah, yeah there's that. Yeah, we're, 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 we're producing oil and gas, but at the same time, this is important too. So it is interesting to see how they're navigating and deftly walking that fine line of a commitment towards safer streets, a commitment towards uh, trying to do something about global warming, as well as, you know, that's part of their economy. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen in other places when that, that economic driver is taken away, that there's obviously negative knock-on effects, but yeah, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm always optimistically hopeful that a lot of these places will find new solutions, but maybe that's just my blissful optimism. Well, it, it's so incredibly powerful when you experience these cities that become more people oriented. And uh, in the in the previous series of photos, we were looking at mostly pedestrian zones. Now we're going to start to look at some of the uh, the Oslo cycle infrastructure and how they are embracing. And and the one thing that uh, Professor Piatkowski uh, Daniel mentioned to me was that I think he did get himself a, a cargo bike, and so he's you know taking the step into that realm because he's got two two kids, and and he's like you know because he doesn't need it to get to work, he can literally walk to work. <laughs> so um, you know it's that's something that they're working on now. So let's, let's, you know, take a look at uh, cycling in Norway here. Go on, bike nerd. <laughs> well, I, I think, you know, are we, as you undoubtedly see on social media, always get the same bad faith arguments in our comment section and in our replies. Uh, yeah, but the Netherlands is flat. Yeah, but the 
they don't have winter there. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but. (laughs) (laughs) And it was quite inspiring to see what is a very hilly, mountainous city Mm -hmm. that gets its fair share of snow in the wintertime going all in on its cycling infrastructure. And it's by no means perfect, but they are where they can applying pretty high level infrastructure that's a pretty hilly street right there i mean that looks like great great uh, shot, san francisco, yeah. could be san francisco san francisco but providing physical separation where it's necessary providing low traffic local streets where they can to complement that and building out this network and the numbers are still quite low i think it's somewhere between five and ten percent of journeys but they have a roadmap and they have some political commitment and yeah, watch watch Oslo because I think even well, Jason Slaughter did a whole old video on on cycling in Oslo and kind of predicted it would be one of the the world's next best cycling cities. I, I don't know if I've seen enough to <laughs> agree, but it's certainly one to watch in the in the years ahead. Yeah, this is an interesting example because it's yeah. like they didn't want to choose between the bike path and the tree, so they kept them both. Yeah. <laughs> And I see this image uh, imagery, you know, frequently. Uh, literally, I mentioned that I was chatting with Manu uh, Calvo from from Seville, and we paused on a photo just like this uh, in our recording session where they needed to save the tree. And uh, in that case, it was a two-way cycle track and they literally just split the lanes and went right around the tree, (laughs) kept the tree. You know, it's like we're not giving up on that tree, especially in a place uh, like Seville where they need the tree canopy for the heat, for sure. But uh, what, what was the orientation to motor vehicle speeds, uh, like say on this street, I saw the previous uh, uh, photo was 40 kilometers per hour. And I'm like, 40 kilometers, that's kind of an odd one. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to the, the Dutch approach of it's kind of either, you know, 30 or 50 kilometers per hour. And we're trying to phase out those darn 50 kilometer per hour ones, because those are the, the fatalities and the serious injury rates on those streets are, are not very much worth crowing about. But yeah, it, 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 would this street have been, uh, since it's uh, the, the orientation of it, would this street most likely be a 30 kilometer per hour street? They are, I mean, they are going kind of all in on the 30 kilometer an hour on as many streets as possible. You would occasionally see 40, I think, as an intermediary step or as a political compromise, maybe. Right, right. But, uh, and it's, and, and yeah. it's, I can understand that, okay, well, we do have like a, a little bit of a physical separation here, but I still cringe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really? 40 kilometers per hour? Eey. Yeah. And this was down by the, the harbor, the, the docks. So I think it was a lot of freight trucks and, and maybe this was a, a compromise with the uh, the logistic companies along uh, those routes. Mm-hmm. But a nice raised crosswalk there, which again we're we're still all too rare in urban environments. But in, in this case, you know, they've uh, to me it looks like it might have been actually a, a, a retrofit. Yeah. So this um, this is part of the newer development that's happening along the waterfront. And so yeah, this would have been like a former. I think it's probably part of what would have been the highway that eventually they've buried underneath the waterways to free up this land to do the development they've done and to quiet out the space. I mean, to be fair, it's probably more about the development than quieting (laughs) uh, in a lot of ways, but it's a nice uh, byproduct. But yeah, I think in that case, they're looking at how do we take the old streets that we have and, and make them work for the purpose of what we're trying to do here. In that case, that area is still under construction. So doing it in a way that can be adapted as needed. 
Well, this this photo actually may be a hint towards uh, that other street that we were questioning and, and talking about because it looks like a similar type of edge lane road uh, treatment here and uh, and the thirty kilometer per hour uh, sign in that area. So, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, yep, I think one. overall, I think Oslo, everyone, it was it was everyone's favorite. So then I started worrying that the rest of the trip would be a tailspin down yeah, yeah. <laughs> from there. <laughs> but I think, you know, we've taken our kids to so many big cities and they've kind of said like enough is enough. And in Oslo, everyone had a good time. Everyone enjoyed themselves. We got to do some cool things. We got to take a tour of the Opera House, which I highly recommend people do. It's very cool. And with uh, Leo now studying for theater production, we got to go backstage as well, which was also uh, oh, very a big cool. experience for Yeah. <laughs> Not well, a personalized you, tour. It is part of the tour. Absolutely. But, <laughs> absolutely. So cool. Well, you mentioned travel. And so we've got a whole bunch of uh, travel photos here as you're making your way around to, to different locations. Is this train travel? No. <laughs> <laughs> so this was like, this was almost our very last thing that we did. So mm-hmm. prior to this, we had we'd taken the train up to Trondheim. And then this was between uh, the tri- journey from Oslo to Bergen. There's this historic rail line uh, called the Flam Railway. Flam, I think is how they say it. And we, yeah, we decided to stop off halfway, take this train line down. See the, it's, so I didn't mention at the beginning, but part of this rail journey was also inspired by all the beautiful railway journeys of the world shows that came up during the pandemic. And this line was on it. And so it became part of our trip. And we wanted to do something when we got to Flum because you can't just get there and then get back on the train and go back up. Uh, so those images you saw earlier were a floating sauna ah, on the fjord nice, nice. <laughs> where you could jump into the water, <laughs> Yeah, which in, it's not too expensive, but we would highly recommend that anyone and everyone do it. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> this is just awful. This is so ugly. I know. It was just, just terrible. So and oh, boring. Yes. <laughs> You're definitely getting your green fix on this uh, trip. Yeah. 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 And the accommodations. (laughs) Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Well, that was the, that was the last train journey of the, uh, uh, of the entire trip was the night train from Bergen to Oslo. And yeah, I'd be lying if I said I got a good night's sleep. It was quite shaky and noisy, (laughs) but still, yeah, you get your, uh, uh, your accommodation and your transportation rolled into one. And yeah, that was us. a nice way to end the trip, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, we did pay a little bit extra so the kids had their own berth, which was also nice. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. Good, good, good move there for sure. Yeah. So we we also have uh, some reflections here from Trondheim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I don't know why we picked Trondheim other than it's the third biggest city yeah. in, the, in Norway. <laughs> it does have the bicycle yeah. lift, so you know that was on the list of like see the bicycle lift. Okay. But it was just, I think it was a really great small scale city. 400 kilometers from the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So quite up there in terms of latitude. Yeah. I mean, I think from an urbanist perspective, it may not be the most interesting city in the world. It's still very much a touristy kind of town. It's not doing too much on walking and cycling and public transport, but it was, it was a nice little mini break for all of us. But I think one thing that, we, and we talked about this, and this is the tram that we took. We talked about this with the Norwegian Road Authority when they invited us to come and talk about our trip with them. Is It's great that they have this really old tram line that takes you up to the mountain to Lian, which is the name that's on the tram there. And we went hiking. And to have that access 
I think it's something that we really appreciated to be able to leave the city and get into nature to go for a hike. And it's something that was always a little bit challenging for us in, in Vancouver. Um, oh, we'd have to rent a car. Yeah. yeah. Or take a lot of buses and, and long, long uh, SkyTrain rides. So to, yeah, to be able to go and yeah have another forest bath and, you know, be next to water. It wasn't warm enough to swim, unfortunately. It was a bit cold that day. But I think it's something that I would hope the people that live in Trondheim or Bergen has something similar, or even Norway, uh, or sorry, Oslo, uh, that they appreciate is they have this access to nature right in their city that a lot of people would be quite jealous of. And you can get up to the top of the mountain for whatever, the two euro tram fare. And the we were told the really interesting story behind that tram is it was very nearly ripped out with the rest of Trondheim's tram network after the Second World War. And it was only because of a group of enthusiasts, tram enthusiasts, protested to keep the tracks and then put up the money to keep it running for a couple of years through fundraising and, and the like. And then eventually the regional authorities decided to take it back over again. But it's a one and only tram that's remaining of that what, what was a quite an extensive network. And it does, I mean, it was quite busy on the day we wrote it. Mm-hmm. But with people just getting to the, the residential areas that are snaking up the mountain, but then of course, yeah, taking their, uh, their walk or their hike or wherever. I'd love to amplify before we get to Bergen. I'd love to amplify what you just said there, Melissa, about the fact that it's so incredibly important for cities to think about having access to activity assets and access to nature for people who don't drive, don't have access to a car. It, it, to me, mm-hmm. it's just bogus that, you know, so much of what we have in North America, if you don't have a car, you can't get to the mountains. If you don't have a car, you can't get to that park. And then you end up having these ridiculously large parking lots associated with these parks because, you know, you just can't get there from here, you know, from your home. You, you, you have to be able to drive there. And so having meaningful, safe alternatives to the automobile is incredibly important, whether that is a tram. Uh, I could just imagine trams, you know, getting people to various ski resorts in, in British Columbia or in Colorado, having access to wonderful pathways like what we saw along the river there in, in Oslo, where that pathway is, is both access to nature and, you know, it gets into the city and it's also an easy escape from the city down to nature too. So I think it's really, really important to, to amplify that fact that cities, you know, be thinking about these ways that you can feed nature, you can feed parks. And uh, one of the initiatives that we have here in the United States is the uh, uh, TPL, the Trust for Public Land, has an initiative of every single resident should be 10 minute walk from a park, a trail, an open space. And I think that that's kind of like one of those baseline levels of treating your res- your residents with a certain level of dignity of being able to, to access nature and access parks. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Now and we're think, in Bergen. You know, <laughs> yeah. So I just, I would add yeah. to that, that, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, aging in place and, and cities being able to be places where our seniors can age in place. And part of that includes that access to nature to help with their moods, but also that access for, for kids. Again, the people that maybe don't have access to a car, but should have the same access. Well, yeah. What to say about Bergen? I mean, I think the reason that urbanists go to Bergen these days is to see, and I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, but the, the, 
Balin Dalin's Tunnel. Balin Dalin's Tunnel. The brand new, brand new, just opened in the spring of this year, walking and cycling tunnel that cuts three, almost three kilometers, I believe, through mm-hmm. the center of this mountain in, in, in the north of Bergen. And it's really a showstopper of a project. I mean, and even the photos don't quite do, do it justice. Something that, well, uh, the, as the, the project managers told us, was kind of an afterthought, uh, a byproduct of uh, an evacuation tunnel that they had to build for the tramway that was also being cut through the mountain. And uh, they just decided, hey, let's do something with this space. Let's activate it. And I think there were a lot of fears around social safety and around graffiti and around crime. Oh, there you go. Feeling styles. Feeling styles. I thought I'd zoom in on that for you. To help you out with that. <laughs> but through, yeah, really kind of light materials, a beautiful piece of art in the center that's actually a sun, uh, representation of a sundial because it's the last place that's actually going to get natural sunlight. <laughs> but it shows the time of day. And otherwise, it's just kind of colored lights and some plastic sheeting. And uh, but the community has really embraced it in the what is the rainiest city in Europe. It's become an activity asset, as you would say, John, for joggers, for rollers, for cyclists to even do multiple laps back and forth in this tunnel and also form the spine of this eight kilometer long greenway that's connected to the tramway uh, that will be the site of future development around housing, office space, park space. It's this green spine that the uh, city of Bergen will be expanding and, and growing around. And it's quite, uh, quite interesting to see that level of foresight and planning around something that's not a motorway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How cool. Going back to that, that comment I made about being underground, I yeah. really appreciated the plastic sheeting and not seeing the mountain above me. Okay. But the, okay. the use of color in that mountain tunnel <laughs> yeah. was, yeah, it was... It's nice because you have that like colorful aspect, but it also cleverly is set up to indicate how far along you are. So to know how far you are in, but how much is left. Um, So if you're concerned about getting out fast, you know where to go. And that actually serves as part of their evacuation strategy. It's not just for people like me that don't want to spend too much time under a mountain, but more to understand if you travel this way, the exit is close versus, you know, traveling to the middle. So I take it, Melissa, you're not okay. going to be uh, doing any cave diving anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. It's super interesting <laughs> to me, but probably not. <laughs> and I mean, they, I think the nice thing about this project is despite the fact that the kids think that every bike ride we take is a stupid bike ride, they were actually quite impressed and really quite enjoyed this experience. It was mm-hmm. something they'll, they were talking about long after we got back to the Netherlands. Yeah. And now, yeah, we've got a little... Time lapse of the experience. <laughs> you know, it's it's really interesting. I mean, you've you've got uh, two young adults uh, there that are are making their way into you know adulthood. They're starting to to you know understand what what they really you know like and and, and all this stuff. And they've been like sponges absorbing all of this. And and I can remember when I filmed you as a family unit walking to school back in 2016. You remember that? I think so. Yeah. Vaguely, yeah. yeah. 
and, and so it's it's been kind of neat, you know, vicariously over over these uh, you know, six seven years, watching the kids grow up and you know completely moving to a different location, and they're just so delightful. By the way, your 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 children are, are absolutely a delight to 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 be around, and we had uh, dinner together uh, in, in November, and and that was super super cool, and it, it's so wonderful to to like experience this vacation uh, with you, your family vacation and all these sights and sounds and, you know, the, the whole thing. It just it warms my heart that you all are, you know, where you are in life and where you are in this journey that you have with your young family and uh, and being able to experience, you know, this. I mean, nothing against, you know, visit coming back and visiting family in North America, but give me a break. I mean, that was freaking awesome. And it's freaking awesome yeah. that you uh, were willing to share your vacation uh, with me uh, today. Again, I'm very selfish in the sense that I'm kind of living vicariously uh, through you. I had hoped to make it to many of the cities that, that you had the opportunity to visit. I may have to call upon you, uh, Melissa, and some of your uh, yeah. planning and, and say, hey, I, it looks like I am going to get up there and, and in that uh, part of the world. Uh, to visit. Any final thoughts and reflections from both of you ab- about this experience and what's what's up next, you know, for next summer? Are we already planning our trips? Not yet for next year. We, we have a couple of things in the works, but yeah, nothing, nothing firm yet, except definitely a trip back to Canada. If, you know, now it'll have been two years again, so we'll have to go, go back next summer and see some family. Um, but I think, yeah, for like, like I said at the beginning of, of this, you know, we're recognizing that our kids are getting older and the family trips that we'll be able to do all together is getting, you know, the the excuse to make them come with us is getting smaller and smaller. I think for me, I think this trip achieved what I wanted it to is it was a chance to do the urbanist stuff that we really like to do, but like, you know, balance it with things that kids really wanted to do. I think we all learned that we all love Norway. And so we will be going back again. (laughs) And I think probably because, you know, we miss the Pacific Northwest every once in a while and it's the closest thing. Uh, without spending thousands of dollars, you know, to experience it ourselves again, uh, that we can do, although Norway is not cheap for those that, you know, may be listening and say, wait, Norway is really expensive. Yes, you're absolutely right. It is. But yeah, I think it was the the perfect summer holiday for us, the perfect balance. And uh, yeah, I don't think I'd change a thing. No, I think, uh, and this is, uh, yeah, I mean, we don't take a moment of this for granted. We still kind of wake up every morning and pinch ourselves that we get to work the jobs that we get to do and, and to live the lives that we get to do. And the social media presence feels almost like a responsibility to kind of share the positivity. But also, well, a lot of this didn't happen without the support of those uh, that community. We were f- reflecting on this today with Doug Gordon, as you, you know, from the War on Cars podcast, and it really does take a village for all the successes, you know, yourself making the introduction to Heather Boyer at Island Press, Doug allowing us to sleep on in his apartment when we were on our book tour. These are all little things that we pay forward and and, and through acts of kindness, create opportunities that uh, and this great little urbanism community that we're really uh, proud to call ourselves uh, members of. So mm-hmm. yeah. um, that made no sense whatsoever. But, 
It made sense to me. I mean, I, I, yeah, it was through social media that I originally uh, made contact with you. So when I learned about your crowd uh, fundraising uh, efforts uh, to, to help with your original trip to the Netherlands. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's easy to, to dunk on social media. And uh, we, we do have to make sure that we are, especially for me, uh, as you well know, because uh, you can experience some of this yourself, is that as a content creator too, I kind of have to make sure that I'm not always, always on and feeling like I have to document every single step, you know, that I take to the grocery store and everything. But selfishly, I'm incredibly grateful that uh, you all have taken us along the ride on your vacations in social media and uh, and once again uh, doing so here on the Active Towns channel. Uh, Chris and Melissa, thank you so very much for doing this. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure. Yeah, no, it's our it's our absolute pleasure. And, and like you said, John, sometimes it can feel like work and it's important to turn off. But I think one of the things that brings us joy when we're traveling, when we're not turning off, is that we're showing places around the world that are doing great things. And, you know, I think that's the reason that we got into this was to show why Vancouver was doing a lot of the great things it was doing. And now to get to do that globally is... Yeah, for us, uh, a privilege that we don't take for granted and we're happy to be in this space. No city has the secret sauce. No city has a silver bullet. Everyone is dealing with its own unique challenges. And uh, But there's so much inspiration we can take and, and we channel it and share it. And, and, uh, yeah, it, it allows us to keep going and it energizes us. And, uh, There'll be plenty more trips in the future that we hope people will follow along for. Watch this space for Melissa's Urbanist travel booking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, uh, and to your point, Chris, uh, I think we all have uh, job security <laughs> in terms of yeah. there's plenty yet to do. And uh, doing what I'm doing here on the Active Towns channel, which is to try to celebrate the, the good things that are happening. And hopefully that is inspiration for other cities that if you're struggling with this, uh, please know that there are resources out there uh, that you know you can turn to. And you had mentioned uh, Jason Slaughter's uh, channel, Not Just Bikes. You mentioned Doug Gordon with the War on Cars podcast. These are all great resources that you can tap into, as well as the Dutch Cycling Embassy and wonderful firms like uh, Mobicon that is out there. So, And don't forget, folks, uh, if you haven't yet already done so, please be sure to check out these books. They are absolutely phenomenal. I cannot recommend them enough. Absolutely delightful connecting with you both once again. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Till the next time. Hey, thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this little uh, show and tell from Melissa and Chris Brundlett. Uh, and if you did, please give it a thumbs up. Leave a comment down below and share it with a friend. And if you haven't done so already, be honored to have you subscribe to the Active Towns channel. Just click on that subscription button down below. Thank you all so much for tuning in. It's really wonderful to have you along for the ride. Uh, well, till next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. And again, sending a huge thank you out to all my Active Towns ambassadors supporting the channel on Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, YouTube Super Thanks, as well as making contributions to the nonprofit and purchasing things from the Active Towns store. Every little bit adds up and it's much appreciated. Thank you all so much.